We're reading from Psalm chapter 74. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased long ago, the tribe of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Turn your steps toward those everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved panelings with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where the Lord was worshiped in the land. We are given no signs from God, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of your earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember, remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at Psalm 74 this morning, if you haven't already done so, would you please open it, find it somewhere, and have it in front of you? We're going to be looking at the text, and it would be helpful to have it before you as we go through this morning. Twice in my life, during dark days of loss, loss of a job, loss of family, God used Psalm 74 to bring me confidence in the midst of my professional and personal crises. The psalm reminded me that God is a God of both the creation and of the covenant. And to both of them, 
God has promised to remain faithful. Now, look at the title of the psalm. It says it's a, a mascal. Well, that's a literary or musical term that uh, many scholars believe means instruction. It's a psalm written for instructing the people in crisis. Well, it certainly instructed me, giving me courage in the midst of my own crises and helping me consider again how the story my life is writing is unfolding in the story that God is writing. So this morning, I've entitled my reflection on Psalm 74, Crisis and Confidence, Creation and Covenant. Crisis and Confidence through Creation and Covenant. Instead of highlighting the four lament elements, I thought that are in this psalm, I thought I'd arrange my comments this morning in three parts. The ways the psalm actually has spoken to me and continues to speak to me in my distress. First, crisis. It's okay for me to acknowledge before God the desolation I feel in my troubles. Two, consider. It's essential that I recall, remember, that God is a God who remains faithful to both his creation and his covenant. And third, confidence. Let's always remember, friends, that our God, the living God, is a God of deliverance, one in whom we can trust that he takes delight in rescuing us and setting us free from our fears and our shame. So crisis, it's okay to feel desolate. Consider, I live within God's creation and covenant. Confidence, God delights in deliverance in setting me free. Crisis. Psalm 74 is about the crisis visited upon the ancient people of God by the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. It's both a plea and a prayer and the great sorrow over the sacking and the destruction of the temple. And look uh, who, who wrote the psalm. It says, as you see there, it's a psalm of Asaph. Scholars believe that Asaph was a prophet musician at the time of the fall of Jerusalem. And either he wrote it or it was written by another when the people of God were in exile in Babylon and then it was delivered to his descendants, Asaph's family, who had become the leading family of temple musicians in Jerusalem at the time of the return in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Look at those first 11 verses. The psalm describes the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and the army of the Chaldeans. It pleads with God to act given the miseries suffered by the desolation of God's sanctuary. Look at that first verse. O oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Why, God? Why? Have you forgotten us? Does this remind you of another passage of Scripture? It does me. Psalm 22. Remember, Psalm 22 begins with these words. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Yes. These are the words of Jesus on the cross in a sense of abandonment from God. In Matthew 27, 46, Elohai, Elohai, Leme Sabakani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Going on, verse 4 through verse 8. Here we see what the enemy has been doing in the sanctuary. They roar into the place. They substitute their standards for God's. They start hacking through everything they can find. They're smashing, they're burning, they're defiling. And in their hearts they say, we'll crush them. And come verse 11, the psalmist cries out, do something. Why do you hold back your hand, your, your hand? your right hand, take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Quit sitting on your hands, God, and act. Can you feel the psalmist's anguish in the picture that he's painted here? Ruthless soldiers plundering the temple, splintering the beautiful woodwork of the holy place with their savage swords, burning the holy instruments of worship, committing savage sacrilege and totally destroying the cultural and religious symbols of the ancient people of God. Reminds me of the merciless Russian assault on the opera houses, schools, churches of Ukraine. Not just to sack and burn, but an attempt to eradicate the Ukrainian culture and people. This was the aim of the Chaldeans in the sacking of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, although an entirely different scale, this psalm still perfectly evokes my own dark anxiety and anger when I lost my job at the American Studies program. Now, I was never fired, I resigned, but over 18 months, Leading up to my resignation, my superiors systematically undermined and effectively destroyed, one by one, the many things that we as a team had accomplished and developed over more than a decade of work. Effectively mentoring each student by every member of the team. Freedom for every faculty member to be a responsible decision maker within their purview that would bind and commit the whole program. Collaborative efforts each semester by the whole team, staff, faculty and staff, to building a better program for the future. All of these things were undermined and systematically taken from us. I was angry, frustrated. Yeah, I was in full-blown crisis mode. I remember muttering in the dark in my bed, why, God? Why was God allowing my and the team's hard-won accomplishments to be discarded as unimportant, peripheral, even wasteful? 
Even though there's no comparison between Jesus' suffering and my own distress, I did find some consolation, knowing that Jesus, too, had felt abandoned. But truth be told, I was in an unrelenting crisis mode. And I can still feel it in the pit of my stomach today. Until God opened my eyes in a new way to consider what comes next in Psalm 74. From crisis to consider. The verses 12 to 17, the psalmist cries out their desires. Look what he says in, Psalm, in verse 12. You, O God, are my king from past ages, bringing salvation to the earth. Oh dear, my friends, this is covenant language. This is the story of God's faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham, that he and his family would become a blessing for the whole world. And then he goes on, the psalmist goes on. Verse 12, you split the sea by your strength and smashed the heads of the sea monsters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. That's a term meaning big monster and let the desert animals eat them. You caused the springs and streams to gush forth, and you dried up rivers that never run dry. This is Exodus language. This is the language of deliverance, of freedom. Now look at it, remember. Remember with me, when was it that God split the sea and then smashed the head of empire, the monster, coming from the sea to destroy God's people. How many times in the desert wanderings did God fight for his people against enormous enemy armies, Leviathans, leaving their dead for the desert scavengers? And how many times did God cause water to spring forth from rocks when God's people cried out in the desert? And when was it that God dried up the river so that God's people might cross over into the promised land on dry ground. My eyes were opened. I realized anew that this is Exodus language. This is the story of freedom. This is the story of God's deliverance, Israel's exodus from Egypt and the miraculous entry into the promised land. The psalmist is recounting Israel's story, which is also, of course, the story of God's covenant faithfulness. The psalmist remembers that the living God is the God who makes things happen, who keeps his promises, who keeps covenant. Then I came to see what the next verses really mean. Verses 16 and 17. Both day and night belong to you. You made the starlight and the sun, the moon and the sun. You set the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Yeah, this is creation language. The creator God sets the boundaries of the natural order. Day and night, moon and sun, summer and winter. Or as Dennis Bakke, a founding deacon here at WCF and a remarkable entrepreneur, often told our American studies students when we go over to visit him in his office, he would say, remember, 
God has made the world in a certain way. We moderns, we don't believe that. We believe that through science and technology and human intellect, we create the boundaries of our own worlds. The story we tell ourselves is that we can control the environment. The story in which we live affirms that we humans have the power to control or change the boundaries of the natural order. Okay, how's that working out for us? You see, the ancient Hebrews knew that it was the covenant God who set the boundaries of creation. They knew that God's world obeyed God's law. So they instructed their children and their children's children to love and obey God's word. They knew the laws of God which called people to love and care for their neighbors, especially the orphan, the widow, the migrant, the poor, were there for the blessings of everyone, would support a society in which everyone would be seen, safe, secure, would experience real peace, shalom. They knew the laws of God's wrath were warning signs of what could result in the normal course of events within God's creation for both persons and nations if people did those things which vandalized God's name and disfigured God's image in others. Yes, we live in a created world of blessing and curse, of contingency, of human responsibility. As I was drawn to consider these verses in Psalm 74, I was reminded that the story of God is a love story told through creation and covenant. And that story, centered as it is in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Christ Jesus, our Lord and King, the Son of God. That is the story of God's covenant faithfulness to the creation, including all human beings, and to God's people. A story on its way to becoming the coming together of the new heavens and the new earth where God will abide with us forever. And this, of course, is why Jesus' anguished plea on the cross, in which he quoted the first line of Psalm 22, also includes these lines from Psalm 22. But you, Lord, are not far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. For you have not despised or scorned the suffering of your afflicted one. You have not hidden your face from him, but have listened to his cry for help. And so it was also with me. Now, it took several months for me to actually receive it. <laughs> but I was slowly able to consider that I'm actually living in the story God is telling, not in the one modern society is telling. The modern society is telling us that we live in an atomized world filled with autonomous individuals creating their own truths their own worlds, their own selves, 
where everyone strives for their own success and measures it by comparing with others. That, my friends, is not the real world. The true world is God's world. And God is love. In God's forever love, God remains faithful to both creation and covenant. When I considered the reality that God is a creator and a covenant God, I was able to find real release from my fear, my anxiety, and my shame. I came to know in fresh ways that God truly loves me and that my worth is not measured by others' evaluations, but by God's love claim on my life. I was able to find confidence I needed in God's love to discover peace for my spirit and forgiveness for those who has disregarded me and my team. From crisis to consider to confidence. But today, I find myself once again lacking the confidence I need to handle my anxiety, my fears, and my anger relative to our nation's condition situation. Look at verses 18 to 23. Psalm 24, 74 ends with petitions for God's deliverance. When I read Psalm 18 and 19 and 20, I can't help but see our nation. A foolish nation has dishonored your name. Don't let these wild beasts destroy your turtle doves. Don't forget your suffering people forever. Remember your covenant promises, for the land is full of darkness and violence. You can't go anywhere these days in the media or on social where you don't see how the land is full of darkness and violence. I reminded how in 2016 I lost a family. Sadly, frustratingly, tragically, Trumpism and Christian nationalism have permeated the family of my older brother. This includes three generations of Bible-believing in-laws, nieces and nephews and cousins. While not being totally cut off from them, our worlds are so different that is, the stories we tell ourselves and the stories in which we live our lives are so different that we find it difficult to know what to talk about or how to relate to them other than very superficially. The story of faith in which they live is the gospel story that says Jesus has come to save us from our sins and to take us to heaven. Now that's partially true, of course. But friends, it is sadly misleading. The gospel is far more about God's covenant love for us and for the creation. The gospel is about how God is keeping his covenant promises to unite heaven and earth so that God might himself abide with his beloved image bearers forever. The heart of the gospel is the covenant promise. I am your God. You are my people. I will be with you. The good news, the gospel, 
is that in Jesus, this great heaven and earth restoration operation is now underway. My family also lives in a story shared by many Western Christians. It's actually more Epicurean than scriptural. Heaven is way off and the earth operates under its own steam. Occasionally God, or the gods, they might intervene to keep us really going off the rails, but the real world operates under its own rules, human standards of self-interest, especially in public life of politics and economics. So it makes total sense that God might anoint a self-serving malefactor who knows how to protect the political interests of religious people. Frankly, I'm both deeply and fundamentally furious that my family and that God's church would be so deceived. And now since news broke that the FBI searched former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida on Monday, some of his supporters are openly calling for armed violence, even civil war. Frankly, in hearing such hot-hinged statements, I find myself back at verse 11, crying out for God to do something. Why do you hold back your hand to your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. So here I am, longing for God to unleash the power of heaven to set things right. I'm crying out, your church is broken, Lord. Remember your promises to bring healing and peace to your people. Now notice, at this point in the psalmist's lament, there's no longer the demand for God to act against the evildoer, as in verse 11. Unleash your powerful fist and destroy them. No, the psalm leaves the response open, waiting, trusting in God's response, confident that God does and will respond. Of course, the psalmist's confidence is in the acknowledgement of who God is, the faithful one, the faithful God of creation and covenant, who keeps covenant to save the people of God and to liberate and renew God's world, to be our God and to abide with us forever. For me, for us, of course, this has already been accomplished through the death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of our Lord Christ, our Master and King. from crisis to consider to confidence. Yeah, but where does that leave us? Where does that leave me? We're still in crisis. Christ's body in America is still broken. Our political and social nightmare continues. Considering God's faithfulness to the creation and the covenant may give us some sense of confidence. But what am I supposed to do? The psalmist leaves me trusting and waiting. Waiting for what? This is why I'm so grateful to be a part of this congregation. Despite our brokenness, 
disagreements and our disputes. <laughs> I know there are people here who love God, who are in love with Jesus. Our stories have been rewritten by the love of Jesus. His abiding love has invaded our lives and is setting us free from fear and shame. Oh yes, we're not completely free from the doubts and fears where shame lurks in the dark corners of our lives, but we are so totally blown away by Jesus' love for us, by his claiming us as his own, that we long to be with him, to abide with him where he is. And I've seen many of you, because of your love for Jesus, abiding with him. And where is he? Yeah, he's with the outcast. He's with the abused. He's with the marginalized, the unseen, the discarded. And where Jesus is, I want to be with him. Remember when John told his disciples, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And two of John's disciples then went to Jesus and Jesus asked them, what do you want? Longing to be where he was, they said, where are you staying? And he replied, come and see. I too want to be so motivated by the love of Jesus that I can move from crisis to confidence. I no longer want to be in crisis mode, fighting injustice because it's the right thing to do. Rather, knowing that Jesus is with those who suffer, I want my love for Jesus to compel me to be where he is. And so confidently follow when he says, Come and see. Amen.